Good to see you all. Um, I've, I said this morning, um, you know, uh, we've, we've been in a bit of a holding pattern as far as um, uh, what we've been sharing from the pulpit. And because, um, you know, prior to, prior to the whole COVID thing happening, we were in a series going through the Book of Romans and uh, we were approaching the end of that. And, uh, and every Sunday morning, I sort of step away from the pulpit or leave the church and I think, oh, well, better get, get, better get back home and better get into Romans and just get this series finished, you know. But, the, but again, it's, it's less than, you know, <laughs> before the day's out, you know, um, we're in the holding pattern. So we're still, so, so Romans is coming, we'll finish it. If, um, but if you turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 4, you'll, you'll recognise the holding pattern that we've been in for a little while. Um, but let's pray our prayer, shall we? So if you bow your hearts and bow your heads, let's, Father in heaven, we just thank you and praise you. Just want to praise you, Father, for who you are and what you've done within our lives and the fact that we are your children, Lord. Oh, that you've chosen us and called us. You've redeemed us. You've justified us. What an amazing thing it is to know that we are sons and daughters of the Most High God. We thank you that we are your children and that you are our God and that you lead us in your truth, that you revealed your Son to us, Father, and that your word is imparted to our hearts and you are changing us from day to day, even as you tell us, Lord, from glory to glory into that image that is Christ. How wonderful it is, Father. And I pray that you would... You would, you would, Lord, draw us into that intimacy of relationship with you. Teach us to pray, O oh God. May we be praying believers, Lord, earnestly, wholeheartedly desiring your presence, your purpose and your power in every aspect of our lives, Lord. And in this intimacy, we invite you, Lord. No, Father, we plead with you that you would search our hearts and you would shine the light of your conviction upon those things that are in our lives that keep us from you. Lord, sanctify us by your truth. Sanctify us by the conviction of your spirit, Lord. Change us, shape us, holy God. And may the power of your message, the power of your gospel message become the most important thing, the most powerful thing that we have, Lord, to transform our lives, but also, Lord, give us a burden for the lost. Give us a hunger and a desire to take this gospel message into this world. But even as Keith Green wrote down so long ago, Lord, Lord, help us to live it first. Help us to live it first, Father. And I just thank you, Lord, what you're doing in our hearts. And we would simply cry out again, Lord, we're finished with careless living. Lord, we want to have something to say. We want to have the light of your love and your life to shine to this world, holy God. We want to have a faith that has substance that can change, Lord, the lives of those people that are near and dear to us, holy God. So we simply present ourselves again this week and say, Lord, we are ready and we are willing to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mm, I like that prayer. <laughs> mm. And I'm going to keep on praying it. Yeah. Okay, John chapter 4. I know most of us are familiar with the story of the Samaritan woman Jesus met at the well. 
And um, we're going we're gonna to start at about verse 20 in a moment, but it's this amazing, amazing interaction between Jesus and this woman. He arrives, no doubt, it's one of those scenes, certainly, that I would love to have seen. Um, tired and thirsty, but in his tiredness and in his need for a drink, he gently exposes the need of this woman's need for forgiveness again by simply asking her for something as sublime and as simple as a drink so he asked her for a drink of water and to begin with she was shocked you know she was shocked in fact that the fact that a Jew Jesus a Jew would even be speaking to her the fact that she's a woman, but also the fact that she is a Samaritan, the fact that, she, they were, that he would ask her for a drink really shocked her. Because, you know, there wasn't much that the Jews and the Samaritans had in common. In fact, the Jews and the Samaritans despised each other. Certainly, I'm not referencing Jesus in this story, because he certainly does not despise this woman or anybody, in fact. But what he does is... He asks her for a drink. She responds with this surprise. And then he says to her, if you knew who I was, he said, you would be asking me and I would give you living water that you will never thirst again. And what he was saying was, he was saying that living water is synonymous with eternal life. If you knew who I was, you know, and she really didn't understand what he was saying. And so she simply comes back and says, oh, you know, she, okay, I'll play along with this guy. I'll give me some of this living water. To which Jesus then seemingly seems to change tack, but he's not. Simply says to him, go and get your husband. Go and get your husband. And the reply came, but I have no husband. And Jesus said, Jesus the master... He's the master of the situation. He says, that's right, you do not have... In fact, you have had five husbands and the guy you're living with right now is not your husband at all. Right? And that's when she comes back and says, oh, I perceive that you're a prophet. What's happened? She's been exposed. This is what's happened. She's been exposed. Probably for the very first time in her life, there was a man standing in front of her who she could not play the game of life with. A man that she could not take advantage of and use. And, for, and, and, and like for all of us, when you stand there and your heart has been exposed, when all your methods of doing life and working life and sorting it out apart from God, when all of those end up empty and you are exposed, then you come to this cry. I think this is where we've all come to this cry that know Christ. You simply come to this place and go, well, where do I go? What, what do I do? And that's exactly what happened to this woman. So this is what Jesus says to her in light of that. He then says, now you're there in verse 20 with me? Excuse me. He says, our fathers worship on this mountain. And this is, sorry, the woman speaking. And you, Jews, say that Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus says to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. 
You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming. Here's our verses. The hour is coming and now is when the, tr- when tr- the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him worship in spirit and in truth. Now, I, I think and I'm convinced that you are far more, or just far too spiritually sophisticated to think that when we read those verses that we are talking about a worship service, worshipping God in spirit and truth. You know this is not just about a worship service. This is not just about um, singing and preaching and having communion and gathering together. No, no, no. Jesus here, what he's doing, he is teaching that the physical place for worship really is of no consequence of God. Where it is, it really isn't. Certainly as believers, we are called to fellowship and to be together. But that's not what this subject is about. This is about worship, what true worship is. The place where we worship has nothing to do with whether or not that worship is acceptable to God. That's what Jesus is saying. So when Jesus speaks of true worship, what he's going to do is going to turn away from all matters of form and outward practices and services. He wants us to dig so much deeper into the spiritual heart of things. Let me say it again. Where we worship and actually how we worship is not the issue. Now before we go on, we make it the issue. But it's not the issue. That's why we have so many different denominations. And I've got nothing against different denominations. But what we tend to do within our denominations is we decide this is how you worship. This is what worship looks like. And so we all start doing it. We develop our traditions and we have our practices. And we all start to look like one another and respond like one another because that's how we worship. And what we do is we find ourselves standing over here with our forms of worship. And you guys are over there with your forms of worship. And we let it divide us. We let it divide us. Because secretly in our hearts we're sitting there going, you don't really understand. You really don't get it. And Jesus is saying, no, this is not what it's about. He says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. The thing he did was to remind her that the religious system, and that's what we build, is that the religious system that she was in was not capable of producing true worship That is acceptable to God. So verse 22, you worship what you do not know, but we know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. So here's the Samaritans. Just just look at them for a moment. They held to the books of Moses in varying ways. But they rejected the prophecies of the Old Testament. They looked to a coming Messiah. But they didn't look to a coming Messiah according to the prophecies describing Jesus Christ. 
And that should be a clue to us, in fact, about what true worship is really all about. I want you to think with me. Jesus is making a clear contrast. And and, and honestly, this is where I upset people. Because Jesus is making a clear contrast between true worship and the worship here of the Samaritan people who were following their traditions, their system that they had created. And he says, what does he say? God seeks true worshippers. You know what that means? This is where I get into trouble. That means if God seeks true worshippers, that means there are false worshippers, right? Oh, you can't say that, Chris. Especially today, you're not allowed to say that, Chris. You can't go there. You see, up until this point, everybody's been pretty happy with me. I mean, everybody, not just you. Everybody's pretty happy with everything I've said. The Christians, yes, the tree worshippers, the star worshippers, those that worship cats and dogs, everybody would happily say, yeah, I agree. You don't need to go to church to worship. And I agree with that. But when they say to me, I worship the trees and the bees, I'm singing praises to Mother Earth every time I sit under my shady tree. No, 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 no. Here's the issue. That's ignorant worship. It's ignorant worship. They may have an innate impulse to worship, and we all do. We're created to worship God. Yes, there's an innate impulse to worship God, but those people are no different to the person who kills a chicken, pulls the feathers out, sticks it in his head, and runs around in a circle. There are people who worship like that. No different. It's ignorant worship. Worship that lacks what? The knowledge of who God really is. The knowledge of God. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, you worship what you do not know. In verse 22. It's quite amazing. This is not a small topic in the Bible, by the way. You know, the Bible talks about it a lot. We're just afraid to speak about it. Jeremiah, in the second chapter, says that God is astonished. You know, and I read that. I've always read that and thought, man, it must take something really, don't you think? To astonish God, you know? But this is what astonishes God. He says in verse 13 of Jeremiah chapter 2, he says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they have hewn themselves out cisterns, broken cisterns which cannot hold water. See, what's a cistern? A cistern is, is, is not a source of water. You know, it's not a source of water. It's just a reservoir that holds water. What's a cistern? It's a hole that they dug out, right? So they dug out this, a hole into this hard, dry limestone of that ancient, arid, barren environment to catch water and to hold water. In other words, it's not a spring. It's not a source of water. In fact, a cistern, the best a cistern can ever be, is something that catches water from runoff or from the rain. It stores it, and at best it just holds it until it goes stagnant. And God says this is an astonishing thing. 
In fact, he's actually talking to the heavens. You read it in Jeremiah. He, he, says, he says, be astonished, O heaven. Look at them. Look at what man is doing. Be astonished. They have forsaken the spring of fountain, the spring of living. Well, they've forsaken me. Why? What? So they can do? So they can dig out their own holes, their own broken cisterns that can't actually hold water at all. You know what this is declaring? This is declaring the truth of man when he forsakes the worship of the true and the living God. He will do just about anything and worship just about anything and worship things in all sorts of different ways. God says, actually, in that same chapter, in in verse 27, he goes on and he says, you know, they, they, they sing to a tree. They sing to a tree and say, you are my father. Hey, we know people like this. They sing, to you, they sing to a tree and say, you are my father. And to a stone they say, you have given me birth. How many people do we know like that? Too many, you know. Too many. They say, my church. They call us Sunday worshippers. They don't understand what we do. But they, they, say, they say, my church is the ocean and my altar is the forest, you know. They get to these places and they'll go out and they'll worship and, and they will go for your throat if you will in any way seek to desecrate their shrines. But you know, the amazing thing is, If you know what I'm talking about, the amazing thing is when real disaster actually strikes their lives, you know, say say cancer invades with its devastating plague. Do these people go running out into their backyard and hug their shady pine tree and say, help me? No, they don't, do they? They find themselves lifting their head heavenwards and saying, God, where are you? God, if you're there, help me. God, where do I go? In fact, that's what Jeremiah says. You read on later in chapter 2, in verse 27, let me read it again. It says, you know, you say to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone you've, you, you gave birth to me. For they, the Lord says, have turned their backs on me, and not their faces, but in the time of their trouble, they will say, arise and save us, talking to the things that they worship. But then God retorts and comes back to them and says, but where are your gods that you have made for yourselves? Let them arise, and if they can, help you in time of trouble. Where are they, he says, to the heart of the worshipper of a false god. And again, in Jeremiah, as I said, it's not a small subject. In the 10th chapter, read it at your own leisure. You know, he's speaking about this same human folly. And he says, he basically says, men are senseless and they are without knowledge. They are shamed by the things that they worship. And they should be. Because these things are frauds, it says. They have no breath. They are worthless. But the creator of all things, he has a name. The creator of all things, he has a name. He is the Lord Almighty. His name is Jesus Christ. You know? And like the woman at the well, so many people are worshipping in ignorance. They they lack the knowledge of who God really is. And again, people will come to you and say, you Christians, you can't say that. 
Yes, we can. You can't say that you are the only ones who know who God is. They say, I go out at night and I look up at the heavens and I look at those stars and I am worshipping God. No, no, you're not. No, you're not. What you're doing is you're looking at something that is so vast and so expansive that you can't get your mind around it. You can't explain it, but you're not worshipping God. What you're doing is you're having an emotional relationship with something that is beyond your ability to be able to comprehend. But here it is. But when you know the one who put those stars there, that's when you begin to worship God. Think about it. On the day of creation, God said, stars be, planets be, and he put them in their place. He created this earth and he said to the mountain, he said, be lifted up and it obeyed them. He said to the valley, you be cast down and it obeyed them. He looked at the seas and he said to the seas, you come no further. And the seas obeyed him. And then he hung from a cross and he bled for mankind and he said, come unto me. And man said, no, I want to do it my own way and I want to decide who you are. Jesus says, no, there's true worship. It has nothing to do with a place. It has nothing to do with a form or how I think he is, but it has everything, everything, everything to do with who God says that he is. That's what it's about. How can anyone ever hope to worship God in an acceptable way without knowing what kind of God he really is? So Proscunius says there, I don't like the font they've used, but that's the Greek word for worship. Does it say that? Does it even say it? Proscunio? Yeah. It means worship. It's cool. It's cool. That's what we go for, yeah. (laughs) Pros means towards, to come towards. Kunios means to kiss. And the word has the thought, this is what worship is, the word has the thought of coming before in obeisance and respect with a kiss. To kiss the hand of a superior Now, the etymology of the kunios, where that word derived from, how we got that word, comes from the idea, and this is really interesting, it comes from the idea of looking at a dog licking his master's hand. Now, any dog lovers? I know you're there. What happens when you get home? Let me preface that. It doesn't matter if you've been gone for a month, for a week, for a day, for 25 minutes, for 30 seconds. It doesn't matter, does it? What happens when you get home? Well, typically, that animal is going to come bounding up to you, right? Looking for your affection. We had to say goodbye to our dog this year. Very sad. But I remember, her name was Reggie, but I remember so well when we would come home, you know. And typically she would come bounding up to us 
again, looking for that attention. But she, got, she, was, so, she was a boxer, by the way, boxer lovers. She would, ju- she would just turn herself inside out, trying to, just trying to contain this, this excitement. He's home. She's home. They're home. And, she, and, and it's like this all the time. If you could just see this, you know, because we were always saying to Reggie, stay down, stay down. Because she, all she wanted to was to get up. You know, and if you had visited us when Reggie was a puppy, I couldn't have saved you. I couldn't have saved you. But what she wants to do is she wants to get to your face with her tongue. That's what she wants. She just wants to... Come on, dog lovers, you know this. Look, I love Reggie. I miss her desperately, but that still creeps me out. It still does. But here's the thing, Ramon, our oldest son, not so creeped out. Not at all. I can remember coming home from work. Ramon had got home from school just before me. He's lying on the couch. Reggie was completely, did not know I was there. Why? Because I walked into this scene. She is, Mon's on the couch, Reggie is standing at her side, and he is licking Ramon's face, not just his face, but his tongue is going into Ramon's mouth, it's going into his ears, it's going to every orifice upon his mouth. It's just, you know? He was, the dog was in heaven, right? Reggie was in heaven, but what was she saying? You know what that is? That's worship. That's adoration. That's what that is, right? The idea is simply this, is that we are to show this profound reverence and submission to someone else coming before one again in obeisance and respect with a kiss. Now, we worship God this way. We worship God this way because he created us, right? We worship God this way because he, uh, he just loves us so much that he came and he died upon a cross for us. He paid the, the penalty for our sin. We worship God this way because he has promised us eternal life. We worship God this way because he is a comfort to us in times of trouble. We worship God this way because his unfailing love and his commitment to us that he will never leave us. He will never abandon us. He will provide all of our needs according to his riches and glory. We worship God this way because he is everything to us but let me say we worship God this way because before he does any of those things he's God he's the sovereign God the creator of the universe and he is amazing and he's so much more than just our friend who looks after us and ensures us we don't get a cold and pays our bills And it just grieves my heart when people have reduced God to that. We worship God this way because there is no one like him, no one to be compared to him. And because of that, we come to him like a salivating dog. That's what worship is. And I think we need to guard our hearts. Now, I know it. We need to guard our hearts. We need to be careful that we, excuse me for using this analogy again, but we need to be careful that we're not licking the wrong hands. Honestly, 
Because as one commentator said, let me get us back on track. One commentator said, so much is given to so much that really does not matter. Do you hear that? So much is given to so much that really does not matter. And so little is given to that which matters the most. Answer the question for yourself. All of us. What really is important? What really matters the most? What truly is worthy of your adoration and of your praise? And if you can't answer that, that's why Jesus says these words. He says, the hour is coming and now is when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those that worship him worship in spirit and in truth. And it comes from a heart. Let me try and describe some of this. It comes from a heart that is free from insecurity. It's free from distractions. Free from wandering thoughts that simply just led off into all these different ideas about what other people have and what this world says about what we should be worshipping, what we should be making important within our life. All of that, it's free from all that. Why? Because it's a result of a deep meditation upon who God is. So when we pray, when we pray, our minds are fixed on the awesomeness of who God is. Again, and we're not, we're not distracted because he's worthy, because he's worth it. And when the word of God, when we're in the word of God and we allow it to come into our minds and our hearts, again, the word of God, it becomes everything. It is God-breathed. It is his communication to me. Think about it. This awesome creator who has loved us in the way that I've been describing, he wants to speak to me. And I'm listening as I allow the word to pierce my heart and to change me. And when I sing and when I gather in corporate worship, he's the light. He's the joy of my soul. And he alone deserves to be lifted up. So I'm not here singing words, singing songs, or thinking about what I'm going to be doing later. No, no, no. He captivates my heart. Do you, get the, do, you get, do you get the answer? Do you understand why the only hands that we lick, the only hands that we adore, are hands that have been pierced for us? You get that? You know? Only his hands have been pierced for you, for me. To worship in spirit and in truth with a sincerity that is realized where? In what he's accomplished for us in the new birth. The spirit himself, it says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 16. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And that is why, and Jim was right when he answered. That is why only those that have been born again by the Spirit of God, made alive by the Spirit of God, can worship in a way that pleases God. It's true. Now Jesus says, I must also worship, and it's important that we say this now, 
Because if I just stop there, I'm just leaving you with some emotional response to the greatness of God. That'll never be enough. Because he says, he says, what does he say? I must also worship God in truth. Jesus, on the night of his arrest with that high priestly prayer, praying for you and I, he said, Father, sanctify them. Sanctify them how? By your truth. Your word is truth. You see, sincerity alone doesn't make worship acceptable to God. You know, some people don't even, you know, and I don't say this to condemn, but some people don't even know they own a Bible. And yet they're trying to engage in this deeply spiritual relationship with a God whom they love. I'm not questioning that. But we've got to worship in truth. To worship in truth means to worship God as he reveals himself through scripture. And so as we give the word of God to our minds and to our hearts, what happens? What happens? It changes us and it inspires us to worship this God. Again, the woman at the well, he said, you don't know what you worship. But it should be shaped. It should be shaped by our view of who God really is. We're only going to find that in his word. We're not going to find it listening to this person or that person or following some organisational view of what Christianity is or what worship is. Never, never, never going to happen. You just become a clone of everybody else. You just end up in this closed, in this closed community repeating what everybody else is repeating and saying, ah, this is spiritual. But if the word of God hasn't been in your heart, transforming your, transforming your life, giving you an idea of what, who God really is... Your worship can only be in response to what they say and what they do. It has to be in response to what Jesus says and what Jesus does. Do you understand what I'm saying? Our faith is based upon, our worship is based upon God's progressive revelation of himself to your heart and to your mind. Too many people get saved Yes, love God, and then put their Bible aside. And they remain in that state. It's knowing who he is. The Samaritan woman didn't know who he was. Now, the problem, here's another problem that we have, and that is so much of our thinking about worship is shaped by obsolete Old Testament concepts. And what I mean by that is our churches are seen as holy places, Thankfully, this is not, right? Our churches are seen as holy places. And we have altars in our churches that are seen to be holy places where holy things happen. And holy people stand around them and do holy things. That's the Old Testament concept of worship. That's why it's so important for you and I, again, to grow in our understanding of worship by focusing upon what Jesus has taught us, what God has taught us through the New Testament. What does the Bible say about the temple of God? Where's the temple of God, Christian? Yes, there you are. There you are. Paul said, do you not know? Don't you know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? 
And as I've repeatedly said, no place is more important than another place when it comes to worship. If we limit worship to what happens in this building, that's what it becomes about. And you can have some wonderful worship in this building. But the moment you leave it, what happens? You leave your attitude of worship behind. And so if we are to please God, our understanding of worship must be shaped by God's truth. It must be. The whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God. Now, I've asked this before. And I'll finish with this, if that's okay. Um, I wonder, I wonder what would happen if one Sunday we came to church and found that there was nobody here. And everybody says, well, we've been doing that for months, right? COVID, right? But we're back. No, but seriously, what if we came to church and Steve wasn't here? Worship team wasn't here. Chris didn't show up. Russ didn't show up. No one preaching the word shows up. And you came to church. What are you going to do? You might walk. You know, there's a few people wandering around this building, wondering what's going on. You might think, oh, well, the coffee machine's out there. At least we can fire that up. We can sit down. We can have a chat over a cup of coffee. But then what are we going to do then? We're going to go. We're going to go home, right? But here's the question. What happens if you came back next week? Same thing again. Nobody's here. What's going on? Well, you'd immediately think, well, I'll go to a church where things are going on, right? But let's just, for the sake of my, my uh, example, say there's no other churches in town. This is the only church in town. What are you going to do? How long? Here's my question. How long would it be before you just began, with grateful hearts, began to worship God? How long would it be before you would start coming week after week to be with people who know and love God like you do? How long would it be before being led by the Spirit of God into tr by truth and worship you would begin to? How long would it be before you were confessing before God, forgive me, I have not been who you wanted me to be? How long would it be before you were singing? How long would it be before you were raising your hands together? How long would it be before you were, you know, forget about Steve, forget about Chris, forget about him. How long would it be before you would be making a joyful noise to testify of the goodness and the greatness of this God that has birthed life into your heart. How long would it be? I hope it would be instant. Because that's what worship is, right? God is pleased when our worship flows from being saved, right? But not just from being saved, but from being saved and growing in the knowledge of who God is, really is. Who is this God? Do you remember what it was like when you got born again? You know, you knew nothing about God because it was a sovereign work of God's spirit. He came in, he arrested your heart. You know, he, he, he convicted you of your sin. You realize you can't do this yourself. You, you asked, cried out to God for forgiveness because someone's told you Jesus died for your sins and he loves you and he will, he will never abandon you. You said, yes, Lord, I need you. And you got forgiven and then you are a brand new creature. Brand new creature. 
with no knowledge whatsoever. You might as well kill a chicken, pull the feathers out, stick it in your head and go run around in a circle. Because <laughs> you don't know who God is. But what did you do? You gave yourself to God's word and you discovered who this God really was. And worship is born out of that. Can I read something to you from Tozer? Um, he wrote a book called Whatever Happened to Worship? And he said, it must be by the Holy Spirit and truth. We cannot worship in the Spirit alone, for the Spirit without truth is helpless. We cannot worship in truth alone, for that would be theology without fire. Worship must be in spirit and in truth. It must be the truth of God and the spirit of God. When a person yielding to God and believing the truth of God, even the faintest, hear this, then even the faintest whisper will be worship. I love that statement. Can I, can I tell you something that happened the other day? Um, uh, we were here on Tuesday. And a young fellow was here, and uh, he had uh, he'd, he'd recently, you know, he'd given his, his heart to God. And, um, and we were sitting there just having a, ch- a chat around the table, and he was standing there next to us and not saying anything. And then all of a sudden, he just burst. He just started to cry. And he started to wail, and he was wailing, and it was just bursting out of him, you know. And for a moment there, we're looking, going, well, what's wrong with this guy? But then very quickly realised, oh, this is beautiful. This is really, really beautiful because he wailed for maybe, I don't know, two minutes, something like, maybe a minute, sorry, I'm exaggerating, maybe a minute, and then he dropped into his chair and he said, oh, thank you, Jesus. You know what that is? That's worship. I mean, he's just met us. He didn't care who we were. We might have, I don't know. But he'd met someone. And, and, and you know what that is? That's the spark of revival in a person's heart. You know? And I truly believe that's who God wants us to be. Just let it out, people. Just worship God. You know, just grow in your knowledge of who God really is. Don't listen to anybody. Don't listen to any organisation. Don't listen to any formality and this is how you do it. You don't have to go to a school to learn this. You've got to know God and worship him according to who he says he is. And if that's who you are, I promise you, you will not be able to hold it in. Worshipping God in spirit and in truth. You know where it started? It started on Calvary. The worship team comes forward. Um, you know, in the, in the Christian church, we are given two traditions. One is communion and the other is baptism. And they don't save us. Neither of them save us. But what they do is they testify of who has saved us and what he has done in us in saving us.
And so you remember. Who remembers being baptized? Yes. Yes? Remember that day. Jesus has... Jesus has come into your life. You've asked him to forgive you of your sin and you want to get... There's something in you that tells you you need to do this. You've learnt about this. You've heard about this. But you need to do this because what you're going to do is you're going to go before your Christian family and also before the world around you and you're going to say to everybody, my life is about Jesus now. That's what baptism is. You get there, (coughs) excuse me, and you go down to the waters... And the symbolism is that here we are, according to the scripture, we were lost. We sang it this morning. We were lost. We go into those waters as sinners stained by the sin of our lives. And we go into those waters. We go under the water and we come up washed clean, new creations in Christ. And that's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If anybody is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things of what? passed away, behold everything is new and you're saying this is what life is about now and every day because my life is all about Jesus you'll be brought back to this spot you'll be brought back to this place not this physical place but this place of worship that was born on Calvary's mountain 2,000 years ago. And the Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe on him will not perish, but shall have everlasting life. God didn't send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. You'll be brought back to this place. Where Jesus said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. This piece of bread sanctified, set apart for the purpose of reminding us that Jesus is the bread of life. And we have partaken of the bread of life. The life of eternity is born within us. And we feast upon it and we grow in it and we walk in it and gives us strength to be everything that God wants us to be. Why? Because we've been washed clean by, our, by the blood of Christ. And so now new creations in the image of God being restored back to that purpose that God created us for. We walk in this world. We come into a greater understanding of just how loving and how glorious this God is. And he's not just my friend. He's not just someone that's going to stop me from getting a cold. He's not someone going to pay my bills but he is the creator of heaven and earth who has saved my soul and has gone away to prepare a place for me he's going to come again he's going to receive me unto himself and there I'm going to be with him forever forever and I worship that God that's the God I worship everything else falls to the side Amen Amen Father in heaven We thank you for this day, for this opportunity. And I pray we would leave this room changed. I pray that our desire to worship you and to honour you would eclipse all things within our life. All things, Lord. That everything would pale by comparison to the beauty and the glory and the wonder and the majesty of who you are. Lord, that we would be humbled this day to realize that your love for us is so great 
that you came here and you walked amongst us and you died a death that we deserve, that we might have a life that belongs only to you. And you've imparted to us eternal life because of what you have done. Let's take the bread together. Thank you, Father. Lord, humble us. Oh, Lord, remind us of the great price that was paid that we could be forgiven. And that the passions and the desires of this world, the things that corrupted our hearts to start with, the things that separated us from you, the things that we cherished that really had no value and offered us nothing but death. Father, keep our eyes fixed on you. Fixed upon that blood-soaked cross. Knowing that it is sufficient knowing that we can go nowhere else. Oh, may we hear that cry of Peter. Where else can we go? For you alone have the words of eternal life. And may we follow you all the days of our life, worshipping you, honouring you, living to please you, Lord God. Teach us to worship, I pray, in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, let's take the cup together.